You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to the Brandy Show. Hi, everybody. I'm Jim Brandstatter, and this is my podcast. We'll get together every week to talk about football, primarily the University of Michigan Wolverines and the Big Ten Conference, with occasional forays into the national picture. We'll also keep up with the Detroit Lions and the NFL. Along the way, we'll have some surprises. We'll certainly have some fun guests and take a tangent or two that has nothing to do with football, like old movies or cooking. Who knows what? Sit back and relax and enjoy The Brandy Show. We're going to have a change of pace podcast today for episode 11. Even though the Lions are back in action, it's a bye week for Michigan, so we've got something special for you. Over the years of my football broadcast career, I was asked to write a book on my Michigan Stadium memories, so I wrote two, Tales from Michigan Stadium, Volumes 1 and 2. And the other thing I've been asked so much is, how did I make those quick travel turnarounds from a Michigan game on Saturday to a Lions game on Sunday, especially when the Lions are on the road? So today, you're going to get me regaling you with stories and moments at Michigan Stadium. We're excited about this type of show. Uh, Let us know what you think on my Facebook page, Jim Brandstatter. If you like it, we'll do more of it. So hang on, listen in, here we go. Hey everybody, welcome in to a very beautiful day this day following a Michigan victory over Michigan State this past week. Let's talk about that a little bit here as we get this, this episode going in our podcast. Michigan 21, Michigan State 7. Now, this game clearly was all about the Michigan defense. They were just swarming all over the Spartans. You know that. You saw the game. It was unbelievable how fast and how quickly this defense took over the game. And even though the offense didn't play great, it was like there was never a chance that this game was going to get out of hand or go Michigan State's way because Michigan's defense was just that good. Think about this. No third down conversions for the Spartans, and they had less than 100 yards of total offense. I mean, that's impossible. You can't do that in today's modern college football, and yet it was done. And it was done on the other guy's home field. I mean, this defensive performance was as good as I've seen from Michigan. Uh, Top five anyway. I've seen a lot of great defensive performances, but this one against Michigan State was outstanding and really was the catalyst in getting Michigan the victory over Michigan State in East Lansing. And and Michigan State was coming off a big win over Penn State on the road. So they had some confidence coming into this football game. Now, offensively, I think they had just enough to win. First of all, they stayed with the running game. They're committed to it. And and I really like that about uh, this offense and, and, and Jim Harbaugh and how he's handling it. Now, he doesn't have an offensive coordinator, but clearly – there is an intention to feature the run game and stay with it and be committed to it. Karan Higdon had over 100 yards again. That was huge in, I think, getting this game in their favor. And then, of course, one big play. Your quarterback has to make plays. The big play was the 79-yard touchdown pass to Donovan Peoples-Jones. A 7-7 game turned into a 14-7 game. After that huge play, over the top, man coverage. Michigan State made a mistake there, going man coverage without a safety, over the top helping. And Donovan Peoples-Jones beat Trey Person, and he went 79 yards for a score. Basically, that was the game. 
That was the huge play in the game. And uh, Che Patterson just put a beautiful throw on it. Uh, Peoples-Jones caught it beautifully and ran out of a tackle. And that 14-7 lead was gigantic considering how the defense was playing. Also, give Shea Patterson a lot of credit in what's going on with his Michigan team. He ran those read option runs on fourth down, third down, where he ran the ball after a fake, got big first downs. He's still valuable as a running back, not just as a scrambler, and he showed it against Michigan State. Also, two big things, I think, to remember about this football game. Sometimes the bounces go your way, sometimes they don't. Well, the bounces went Michigan's way. On both of their touchdown drives, they had tipped balls that Michigan's receivers fought for and made catches on and got first downs. The first one was Nico Collins coming back to take a tipped ball, getting a first down, or Michigan would have been kicking it away. The second one was Zach Gentry staying with it, even though he was out of bounds, came back inbounds, established himself, got a tipped ball, and again, another first down. I mean, those guys both have to stay in the play. You have to keep your focus going. The ball gets tipped in the air. You can kind of forget about it, run out of bounds, plays over. They didn't. They made plays on tipped balls. And that, to me, was huge. That Michigan got the bounces their way, but they made good on those breaks by taking those breaks and putting them in the end zone for 14 points. Michigan 21, Michigan State 7, big, big, big win. Now, the big controversy in the game, of course, didn't come during the game. It came before the game. It was about Michigan State's pregame walk, where they walk arm in arm 100 yards down the field. It's getting a lot of play, more than I think it should. And it bothers me a little bit because I think this is totally on Michigan State's shoulders. Now, you're going to say, you're going to say that, Brant Statter, because basically I'm a Michigan guy. And that's true. But let's step back and look at it a little bit. First of all, understand there's a clock in every stadium for every game. And both teams have that schedule. And that clock tells you when you can have the field, when nobody's on the field, and you can do your pregame walk, all of that stuff. It gives you the information and the time when the field is available for early warm-up and etc. for both teams. And this game this past week was no different. MSU was scheduled for the down-the-field walk before 10 a.m. Michigan's players weren't out there before 10 a.m. Even in the newspaper reports about this, there's a line, and I think this is important. The line in the newspaper report says, quote, usually MSU makes its walk before the visiting team warms up. Usually MSU makes its walk before the visiting team warms up. Now, that's not me saying that. That's something that other people have observed. As a matter of fact, A newspaper reporter observed it and wrote it in his article. Well, Michigan State took their walk late. Michigan thought they were cleared to warm up by the stadium operator's clock, by the itinerary that they got prior to the game, like they do for every game, whether they're on the road at Michigan State, Indiana, Purdue, Ohio State. There is a stadium clock, and you operate your players on the field by the timing on that clock. I was told by a Michigan staffer who deals with this every week that they had the clock, they were cleared to go on the field, and they thought there was no problem with it, so the guys went on the field. Additionally, now MSU walked out there wearing sweats and their helmets. Now, that's not always the case. I've seen them 
in polo shirts with no helmets doing their pregame walk. Do you think maybe that they were expecting something? (laughs) That's just me speculating. Also, after Harbaugh said in his postgame remarks that it was a Bush League deal, D'Antonio said BS, the head coach at Michigan State. He said BS. Harbaugh said it was Bush League. They clotheslined one of my guys, ripped off one of their headsets, and Coach D'Antonio was behind the line smiling. Well, I looked at pictures. I researched this. And the fact is, D'Antonio was behind the line of his players walking down the field. That is not BS. That is a fact. Whether there's a smile there is kind of inconclusive. But he was clearly behind those players, and he was watching all of this that went on. Did nothing to stop it. Uh, That's the head coach at Michigan State. If that's BS, so be it. And also, let's be logical about this. I mean, seriously, think about it. If you come out there to do this, to do this stadium walk, it takes a while for you to get all your players lined up on the goal line from sideline to sideline, right? Wouldn't you see the Michigan players down the field warming up while you were setting up to do this? And if you're D'Antonio, why not tell one of the stadium guards or one of the officials out there to go down while you're getting set up and ask the Michigan players, please move over to the sideline just for the next five minutes and allow this walk to continue. It's easily done and it avoids a confrontation. It wasn't done. They just barged down the field. Now that's the deal. What do you expect? What did you expect? If you're Mark D'Antonio, the head coach at Michigan State, and you take this walk and you barge right down the field and there are some Michigan players down there in this heated in-state rivalry, what are you expecting? You expecting both guys to stand there, shake hands, hug, kiss, and say, hey, good luck today. I mean, come on, coach. This was something that could have been avoided. And yet, instead of avoiding it, you kind of took it up a notch by setting this whole thing in motion. It could have been avoided. And isn't it odd to anyone else that this is the only time I can remember this happening? They've taken the stadium walk before Notre Dame games. They've taken it before Ohio State games. And yet, somehow, some way, they happen to be late this time against Michigan. And guess what? Something happened. And now, It has created, quote-unquote, bad blood. If there wasn't already enough bad blood between Michigan and Michigan State, and you'll hear about it and you'll see it as Michigan and Michigan State plays for the next 20, 25 years. It's just the way it is. For instance, after the game, Chase Winovich talked about little brother again. Well, that videotape is going to be saved, and it's going to be out there for years to come. Because before this game, don't you remember Mike Hart? His video talking about Little Brother from years ago was replayed on the TV prior to the game and their pregame shows to hype the game. This one by Chase will be too. It will never go away. Videotape does that. So the confrontation, while it could have been avoided, it created the situation that is now the controversy prior to the game. Whatever Coach D'Antonio was expecting it to do, it didn't happen because ultimately, It was Michigan 21, Michigan State 7. The Wolverines have Paul Bunyan back. It's in Ann Arbor. And next year in November, Michigan State visits Ann Arbor. And there won't be 
a stadium walk. Thank God. All right, now time to move on for a different kind of show this week. Here's another excerpt from Tales from Michigan Stadium, Volume 2. You know, after I wrote Tales from Michigan Stadium, Volume 1, I got a lot of advice I hadn't included enough about the Michigan Marching Band. So in the sequel, Tales 2, as I call it, I made sure to increase the awareness of the huge role the Michigan Marching Band plays on football Saturdays in Ann Arbor. This story is called Making the Band. If you think it's competitive to be on the Michigan football team, you should see what it takes to make the cut for the marching band at performance on Saturdays. You've got to be good. You've got to be tough. You've got to get a break at times. And most importantly, you've got to be incredibly dedicated to achieving the goal. It is an accomplishment that should make anyone proud. There are actually about 400 people in the band, former drum major Matt Pickus explained. But you only see 250 at halftime. The 250 that you see is called the performance block. The rest of the group is called the reserves. It keeps everybody on their toes because the people in the performance block want to stay there and the reserves want to move up. And there's competition for spots in the performance block every week. Although this competitive atmosphere may sound a bit like a pressure cooker, it certainly creates the environment to bring out the best in people. It also ensures that on Saturday, you're getting the absolute best 250 that the band has to offer. But two weeks before the season begins, it is even more demanding because the members go through band week, a grueling time similar to the physical and mental stress of football two-a-days. During band week, Pick has told me, everybody looks at everybody else. The entire band actually votes on who makes the performance block and who doesn't. One rank at a time, of 12 members marches in the front of the marching band playing the victors, and the entire band votes on who is better or who is worse. Everyone's heads are down and their eyes are closed, so it is a private vote. That's how their performance block is set for the first game. It is a vote by the band members. Talk about high drama. Yet, these band members are willing to go through it for the opportunity to go out on the floor of Michigan Stadium every Saturday wearing their own maize and blue uniforms. That's the story of the band performance block from Matt Pickus in Tales from Michigan, Volume 2. The Brandy Show is a Zing Media Group production. Zing Media Group, tell your story. Here's a Tales from Michigan 2 excerpt from former Wolverine tight end Greg Dunaway. He still works in Ann Arbor. He was a special talent for the Wolverines in his day. He went on to a fine career in the NFL, but in Tales from Michigan Stadium, Volume 2, Dunaway told me about a lesson in expectations he received in one of his first team meetings. A different standard, we call it. October 4th, 1975, the chalkboard read. Those words, written in 1979, have stayed with tight end Craig Dunaway because they made him realize how high the expectations were surrounding those on the Michigan football team. I had only been on campus a month, Dunaway explains. We've had two games. We trounced Northwestern, but we lost to Notre Dame 12-10 on a blocked field goal. So early the next week, we're in the full team meeting room getting ready for our third game against Kansas. Coach Schembechler came into the room to start the meeting. And the first thing he did was walk to the chalkboard and wrote down the date. It was October 4th, 1975. Everyone in the room sat in silence, wondering what the significance was of a date that was four years old. Then players started whispering to each other as someone realized what it meant. 
It was the last date that Michigan had been ranked outside the top 10 up until that day in 1979, Dunaway remembers. We had gone from October 1975 to mid-September 1979 without ever falling out of the top 10 until that week after the loss to Notre Dame. That's when I realized, wow, there's a degree of excellence expected here at Michigan that I had never realized until that moment. There was a different standard here. That's the story from Craig Dunaway in Tales from Michigan, Volume 2. The Brandy Show is a Zing Media Group production. Zing Media Group, tell your story. Here's a story from Tales from Michigan Stadium, Volume 2. Uh, Tom Goss distinguished himself as one of Michigan's fine athletic directors, but before that, he distinguished himself as a defensive lineman for the Wolverines, and in the 60s, he was a player, and he was tough as they come, and this incident against Minnesota proved just how tough. It's called, Where's My Arm? Goss remembers well the arm pads that he wore on his forearms. They had his numbers stenciled on them. They weren't anything fancy, but they stick in his mind because of a game at Minnesota his junior year. During a Minnesota drive, Goss lined up to face the offensive line. After the snap, two linemen attacked him. One of them, John Williams, grabbed Goss by the arm. He jerked down on Goss's arm and the pad at the same time, and Goss pulled up on the arm, and all of a sudden, he heard a pop. Goss landed flat on his back and noticed that linebacker Frank Nunley was knocked out on the play. Then he noticed something else. He couldn't feel his forearm. The trainer scrambled around him, and Goss looked directly at them. He said, where's my arm? He looked and saw that his elbow was laying off to the side and realized it was numb. He said, my elbow was actually pulled out of the socket, and that was the most painful experience in my life. He went to the sideline, and the trainers popped it back in, and they gave him two painkillers, and that was that. That's when men were tough, as Goss chuckles at the remembrance of that story. Goss did not go back into that Minnesota game that day, but two weeks later, he did play against Ohio State with his arm and elbow taped to his side. Can you imagine? First of all, that he was able to play two weeks later. And secondly, that he was able to be effective as a defensive lineman, basically playing one-handed. That's the story from Tales 2 of Tom Goss.